Hello and welcome to the Conscious Diva podcast. I'm Tatiana Wright and joining me today is author, teacher, priestess and yogini Laura Amazoni. Laura has published numerous articles in academic journals and anthologies in the fields of Tantra, Hinduism and women's spirituality. Laura's book, Goddess Durga and Sacred Female Power shows how Durga and her myriad expressions in ancient myth and contemporary ritual are a living transformative power that is completely relevant in our daily lives and a much needed guide in these shifting times. Welcome, Laura. Hello, Tatiana. Jai Ma. Jai Ma. Good to be here with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we could talk about so many things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Shakti is strong. Right? It's amazing. And so I think for today and the times that we're going through, um, thank you for discussing the Chandipath and the Saptamatrikas. So these are the two key topics I'd love to have you explain mm -hmm. and um, really share these traditions because they both, there's, there's a lot there, but there's an incredible relevance to them. So I might have you start with explaining Durga and how mm -hmm. she's relevant and perhaps more relevant today than ever before. Okay. So Durga is the great mother goddess um, of the, Hindu Shakta Tantra traditions. She's a goddess who is known for her Shakti, her power, her energy of courage, of strength. Uh, she's known as a goddess who helps remove fear, helps alleviate suffering. She's a goddess to call on in times of distress. Um, she is a goddess who helps with grief, she, her name actually, Durga, has many meanings. Sanskrit is such a beautiful language. So there's many layers of, um, of meaning, expressions of consciousness. But one, one of the meanings of Durga is fortress. And so she's known as the invincible or the unassailable one. And what this is referencing is really that energy of our own consciousness within our hearts that is invincible, that is unassailable. Uh, no matter what is happening around us, to us, of course, we have, you know, we experience our own pain and suffering from illness or from what we're seeing, you know, happening, playing out in the world. Mm. And yet she's really a force of consciousness that is a refuge and a guide. And very, very ancient, we find her, we could trace her back, you know, into ancient Africa you know, even into the Paleolithic, because you see the mother goddess with her feline um, really appearing all over the world in different world mythologies. But in terms of South Asia and these traditions, particularly the Himalayan um, traditions, she's a very beloved goddess across, you know, different um, tantric streams. And she really is featured in this myth the Devi Mahatmyam, which is a myth that comes from the fifth century of the common era. And it's narrating a story of times very much like we find ourselves in where um, all the worlds are out of balance. Things are incredibly unstable politically when we're facing um, epidemics. And then now, of course, in this case, this pandemic and you know, it's, it's describing that the gods are powerless and pretty much everyone doesn't know what to do or how to stop the senseless violence and greed and the bloodshed and arrogance that's being expressed. And 
it's only through the fierce compassion of this divine mother that um, can really come and restore the balance and the equilibrium. I asked you to explain who she is first because you can't really talk about the Matrikas or the Chandipath without first talking about Durga. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So thank you. And, and we're going to talk about a specific chapter from the Chandipath, chapter 11, mm -hmm. uh, which actually highlights the goddess Bhuvaneshwari. So if you could just explain who Bhuvaneshwari is and mm -hmm. how she's a, a manifestation of Durga. Yes. So we have within in the Hindu tradition an understanding, particularly in the Shakta Tantra stream, in which I'm, 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 I've been initiated in and I'm, I've done majority of my research um, on, the goddess is known as the one and the many. So she's the absolute consciousness. She's the undifferentiated, just unified field of consciousness. And then she comes into these relative forms. She makes an appearance here in this plane and other planes through these many different emanations. And Bhuvaneshwari is one of the names, and this is one of the collective forms. So one of the many forms the goddess appears in, mm -hmm. um, in a collective known as the Dasha Mahavidyas. And so Bhuvaneshwari is a goddess of the world, really, of this physical plane, but not only this plane, she's a goddess of, of, of many worlds. And she also is carrying these qualities of sustainability, of beauty. Beauty, we say in the Sri Vidya tradition, Sri Vidya is also a Shakta lineage stream, that beauty is a very high concept, um, not in that everyday sense that we understand it, perhaps, you know, in this 3D reality, but really in that sense of wholeness, mm -hmm. of having experiences that really suspend the mind, that bring us into a state of deepened presence, deepened awareness and connection, that maybe we forget what's happening, um, not in a sense of denial, but there's a deep sense of merging with that, which is beautiful, bringing us back to the source. And so Bhuvaneshwari is a sovereign mother. Sovereign though, in the sense it's not in how we understand royalty, it's really about our own spiritual authority. Mm. And even when we're talking about the goddess as Durgar, Bhuvaneshwari, or the collective forms like Dasha Mahavidyas or Sapta or Ashtamatrikas, we're always referencing back to ourself and different facets of our own being, different expressions of our own being. Well, I guess I'll just ask you now, um, since you're, you're talking about it, but I wanted to have you specifically explain the difference between the Ashta Matrikas, the eight, and obviously the Sapta Matrikas, the seven mothers, but also the difference between the 10 Mahavidyas <laughs> and how, how they're different but similar. And it's not just about having an extra number or two or three. Right, exactly. Oh, there's so much. It's such a, it's an incredible topic. Um, so in terms of the collective, so speaking to, speaking to the collective, so again, coming back to goddess Devi, which means really to shine, it comes from the light of consciousness. So she's the one and expresses through the many. So in these different narratives, different collectives appear. But to begin with, um, the Dasha Mahavijas, actually as a collective, they appear rather late. In, in the Middle Ages, actually. Even though there's references to some of them, and you could say 
that, um, you know, Bhuvaneshwari has her own following, other ones, Matangi, who's also Dasha Mahavijaya, has her own following, Kali, and so forth, but they have specific functions of consciousness. And the there's always different numberings depending on different lineage streams or different regions and so forth, but they have a lot to do with evolution of consciousness, expression of consciousness, not only on this plane, but in others. Mm-hmm. And so, so much can be said, but I'll just leave it there for now. Just the Dasha Mahavijas, these goddesses of, um, I believe David Kinsey calls them of spiritual transformation and liberation. So you could be working with Kali or fierce Tara or Bhuvaneshwari for your whole life and that's your path and this and, and there's specific sadhana practices that unfold so and the dasha mahavijas are durga again the many they're expressed and yet they also have their expression and as as the one yeah. the matrikas they have another an interesting history too so when i mentioned that durga goes way way back you find the mother goddess in every culture every culture around the world going back to ancient times and, all, and particularly if you're looking in pre-patriarchy you will always find this um, feminine female representation of the divine as the mother with her animals but feline is extremely prominent you also find a reference to seven figures and there's different legends and myths around it and so if we come and focus, you know, as we are on South Asia, you can trace the Saptamatrikas. So Sapta means seven. Matrika means mother goddesses, but with the Matrika, it has to do with, um, it's kind of an in term of endearment too. Like you have the mother goddess Amba, and then she's also called um, Ambika. Mm-hmm. And Ambika is Durga, Amba is Durga, the Matrikas are Durga. And you see them often references the little mothers. Yeah, you see the references the little mothers. So it's not to diminish them, but to express, you know, they have a particular function related to Durga, which I'll come to in a moment. But you first, the first reference that we find of them is in the seal stones that date back to approximately 3400 to 3200 before the Common Era in what is now known as the Indus Sarasvati Valley Civilization. Mm-hmm. And who are the Saptama? There's seven figurines found at the bottom of the seal stone. And there's a relationship with them in the Pleiades and the seven sisters of the Pleiades. You also then find this honoring and of significance of number seven with seven rishis, these seven wide sages who downloaded scriptures, who downloaded information. Or you have different legends throughout South Asia of seven rivers and this powers and the association with different female beings and seven being a number in many different spiritual traditions that is significant for the ways that it orders the universe if you think even going you know in within greek culture seven days of a week the week seven notes on the musical scale and so forth mm-hmm. eight also is a significant number it's a number of power and so we could again go into as above, so below, it's become an infinity symbol, but you also see it in so many different references in the tantras, you know, even looking at um, the 64 arts within tantra, it's a multiple of eight, um, eight cities, eight powers, eight directions, and so forth, nine also. So these are different and, ways. 
the 64 yoginis as well, which also the has, 64 yoginis, yeah. absolutely. And then nine also becomes very significant and is a reference to a whole other collective called the nine Durgas. But when, to, so I know it's a lot of information and can be very confusing, but it has to do with the ordering of consciousness and this particular plane of consciousness and also how we access other states of consciousness. They have specific functions from the folk level, you know, so the Saptamatrikas were seen and still are seen as guardians. I call them guardians of thresholds of consciousness. They rule over different rites of passage rituals that we all as humans experience from birth to illness, to the blood mysteries, menstruation, you know, to pregnancy, to death, um, different altered states, trance experiences we're having because we find them at the gates. Um, in both uh, in the cosmology of Durga, and then also you see them on the village level, really literally as shrines protecting the boundaries. And these are goddesses who can nav navigate between, or expressions of consciousness that navigate between these different states. And they also work with our emotions. They work with our senses and our afflicted, as we, the language we use in Trivija, or obscured emotions. So they help us transmute our pride and arrogance, or our anger, or um, jealousy. And in order to really access higher and deeper states of consciousness, we have to come through or transmute our conditioning or certain preferences we have, or certain dislikes we have, you know, that is our very ego-based. And so to have a, a deeper immersive experience into what reality is. And I think, you know, really in my experience, all these goddesses are taking us back to her, to Durga, or we could call her Bhuvaneshri, and they're guides. They're, they're clans of goddesses that are teaching us certain mysteries and the unfolding of certain mysteries, and then bringing us into those deepened states of um, oneness, and without denying the diversity, without you know dismissing our differences, but seeing that really as an expression that you know the multiplicity of consciousness and how it's expressed, it's incredible. It's incredibly creative, and there's something for everyone too. So if a Dwarga isn't is it you don't feel a connection to her you may feel a connection to her in her form of bhuvaneshwari or mahalakshmi or sarasvati goddess of creativity yeah when we have ashtamatrikas an eighth is added on so in the origin stories and you can find them you can find origin stories connected to the pleiades and every all this ancient mythology too. Yes. see that reference to the seven and then what happened in specifically in nepal which i know is also your spiritual homeland um ashtamatrikas became very prominent and you find them on the boundaries of Kathmandu, mm. the Kathmandu mandala you find them on the, on the boundaries of the other two medieval tantric cities patan and bhaktapur you see them in Nepal, Nepal, actually, the country, one of the names is Nepal Mandala. So it's understood as a whole yantra, a whole constellation of different beings. And you find, you know, this confluence of Hindu and Buddhist. Oh, so and incredible. Yes. And then the matrikas feature there, they became Brahmanized. So they took on names from the later, more orthodox traditions. And there's different theories around this to be 
you know, assimilated. And so mm. the indigenous tribal people's beliefs would be assimilated into these other traditions. Um, and for and in some ways you can see that it's positive in other ways you can really see how that became very negative because some of the traditions became so exclusive and you had to be male you had to be yeah. certain caste but they are they're the indigenous elemental beings that on a fundamental folk level their work if you're ill mm -hmm. we would say this pandemic is an expression of the mother that she brings the disease she is the disease and she's the one that removes the disease and so the matrikas assist with that. And so it's, you can see them in the eight form is connected to the four directions, the intermediary points. And because they're pro so prominent as the eight, and then as you said, the, their connection to the 64 yoginis, mm -hmm. that's why a lot of my work has focused on them and mm. that form. But they appear in both the form of seven and eight in the Devi Mahatmya myth. You know, in that, which becomes the Chand, and I can speak to that shortly, mm -hmm. um, the, ch the pot. But you find them in every puja, pretty much in these tantric streams or the Shakta streams, because they're guardians. Yeah. They're the gatekeepers. And they are the divine mother herself, too. So even though we're looking maybe at, you know, them in a collective of eight, they're the Shaktis, the powers of Durga. Mm. And this, and usually you have a standard list of the seven with slight variations depending on which region. And then the eighth is added, which in the case of Nepal, Nepal the Matrika's name is Mahalakshmi. But it's, it's, it's similar to Lakshmi as we know her as a goddess of abundance and beauty and so forth. And yet very specific because she's tantric and she's very fierce. She's wrathful and loving. Interesting. Hmm but she has a specific domain of what she's working with okay. so, to bring us to the greater form of Mahalakshmi. Amazing. Amazing. And, you know, and, and I, I uh, had often wondered why they, I realized that sometimes they're considered the consorts of, of the male counterparts, but I had wondered why they were given feminized names, <laughs> you know, Brahma, you have what is it? It's Brahmani, right? Yeah. yeah. And then Indra, you have in Yeah. Maheshwari from Maheshwari, um, Kalmari from yes. yeah, Kumara. But it, no, that this is later and it's to assimilate okay. the energies. And yes, that's part of the Orthodox traditions too, to say their concerts. No, they're, they are standalone, very independent. Well, that's what I thought they were standalone independent goddesses, that there's some literature that has them as its consorts and there's even um, imagery that you can see where they're in those great battles and they're named as such, you know, and, yeah. I, and that can almost be confusing because it was like, well, hang on, I know these goddesses as other names. Yeah. Why are they being depicted? This was what I was questioning myself, wondering myself, why are they being depicted with these male, these feminized male names? Think of it this way in Orient, you know, that that, Shakti, you know, Shakti and Shiva, so the divine feminine and divine masculine, they're not, they're inseparable. I mean, Durga is, you know, the expression of both, you know, the, you know, the, and her Shakti, her multiplicity expressing the form, but we could say that the Shiva, the so-called, well, it's beyond gender, the masculine mm -hmm. is that quiescent, that receptive form. And like the dark moon and the full moon, one, you know, it's one moon. Yes. So they have different expressions. And in my Sri Vigil lineage, my teacher Parvati always talks about the masculine, to consider the masculine as the ground, as the container. Again, going beyond gender, 
Mm -hmm. It's the field of consciousness to play out on. And then the Shakti is the form. So the Matrikas do have relationships to another collective. They're called Bhairavas, Ashtabhairavas. So in Nepal, as you may remember, very fierce forms of Shiva that again have a particular function towards consciousness. And so much of what we're doing in our practices is like, we're working with them to come back to what we really are, to remember what we really are and to see through, you know, all the facade or what is illusory, yes. you know, here in this, this, this world, world of form. And so we work with these very fierce, wrathful deities that may appear terrifying in their iconography, but it's not meant to scare us. It's meant mm -hmm. to, kind of, to strip the ego, to transform. Yeah. To, to take away these layers of conditioning that you know we've been programmed to believe that we don't have power or we have to express power in this way or you know only this type of person gets ahead or whatever it is. So these we're working with our own consciousness to go in and really uproot and to yes. come back into more harmonious ways of being. Well, what's interesting about that too is once we have allowed whether the, that deity often the deities show up because we need them we don't even realize right but yes, once, exactly. once we've accepted this and allowed and started to work with this energy you can then call upon this deity to support you with other things so whatever you're whether you're a healer or whatever field you're working in you can actually use it we see that in nepal in these traditions as well with the shamanic practitioners the tantric practitioners they're using the furba you know, their ritual dagger and they're calling upon Bairala to literally come in and cleanse and help. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing. We begin, we have relationships and there are yeah. aspects of ourselves, but you really start to see the displays mm. because, you know, whatever, you know, we're putting our attention on these particular forms, they do respond. Yeah. And it's so fun. I mean, we're saying it's really fierce and yes, and we're doing all this deep well, work. Well, there is a fierceness to it. I mean, there, there absolutely exactly. is that aspect, but it's not to be afraid of, like you said. It's not like, don't, just because you see an image that has, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell if they're male or female because of how they look. You know, they're covered in, um, you know, eyeballs that are coming out of this. Yeah. One of them. Multiple arms. Has, yeah, many arms, but there, I know there's some, recently I was shown through my teacher and, and she has so many eyeballs coming out of like, and, and literally stripping out from the, from the retina, like dangling off of her head. And then at the ends of her fingertips, there's eyeballs too, right? And so these are meant to be literally cutting through, seeing, observing all these different aspects of the self of, you know, what, like seeing what's going on so you can understand how to break through. Yes. You literally exactly. pinpoint and say, that's the aspect of yourself you need to be looking at. And that's what even with the tools, it's beautiful, like with the eyeballs or the three eyes, or if they have a tool, they have the sword, it's for, you know. Or a skirt of heads. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Severing the ego, you know, or yeah. using the sword of discernment or using the spear for penetrating insight. So there's, yeah. and that's why it's so important to have guides or teachers mm -hmm. on the path that are saying, hey, this is what it's pointing to. Or if this particular form keeps showing up then this is an expression of consciousness that's within you that's needing attention, yeah. needing expression. And it's fun too. It's, yeah. it's, there's so much amusement, right? It's just, yes. amazing things can happen. It up. No, yeah. no, you don't. Stuff I mean, it's, that happens, it's like, yeah. wow, yeah. there's so much to, more to this world. I've been in this you know, little box or thinking this and this and this, and then 
suddenly this is happening. I'm having this conversation or like the oh, conversation yeah. you had. And it's just, it's just so heart opening and affirming and, and really to come back to, it's like, we're not alone. Yeah. We're really not alone. And yes, things are really extreme, but there are practices that are millennia. Yeah. Now. Well, so let, let's talk about the Chandipad now. This beautiful scripture, this text, but it's so much more than a text. I mean, oh, yes. it's a practice that involves mantra and yantra and ritual. So first explain what the word Chandipad means. Okay. So Chandi is the mother. It's Durga. Durga is the one and the many, and she has many different names. And she appears in, in specific forms, as you know, we've talked about. Mm -hmm. And one of the forms that she appears in is Chandi, Chandika. It's coming from, um, sometimes it's interpreted as the angry one. And what is she angry about? It's more about wrath and more well, I've about- I've also read it as described as she who tears apart thought. Yes. Exactly. Yes. So she's the one. What is she angry? She's she's angry or she's wrathful or she's she's dealing with these limiting thoughts, mm. these harmful thoughts, or even on an everyday level, all these thoughts that are circling around, you know, perpetuating certain beliefs that yeah. create more suffering within us and so forth. And so essentially she's a very fierce form of the mother that comes at a time when the world is completely imbalanced. It's coming from this greater text that I mentioned earlier, the Devi Mahatmyam, that was written in the fifth century of the common era. And it's a sacred scripture, just like the Bible or even another Hindu, the Gita in the Hindu traditions or, you know, and it's so it's, it's a narration of about consciousness and really how consciousness comes into form. So the descent of consciousness from the formless into the form and then showing the many, it expresses the many afflictions or the many pitfalls, maybe we could say, or the many difficulties on this path that are presented as demons, asuras. That can be in English translated as aspects of ourselves that represent the end consciousness which pervades all, right? This sources of refuge, this sort of um, lack of faith or... Pride, um, yeah. greed violence towards ourselves and others, racism, yes. sexism, um, homophobia, transphobia. Totally. All yeah. of that is there. It's written, you know, again, so relevant, even though the greater text was written in the fifth century. And again, like you said, so it's, it's a practice. You can look at it historically, so many ways to approach it. But mm -hmm. in terms of practice, so sadhana to yeah. practice, another meaning of sadhana is support. Mm -hmm it can be recited. So it was condensed, this great text, it's 13 um, chapters, into 700 verses. The 700 verses are the Chandi Pat. Pat means recitation, the recitation of Chandi. Mm. And through the mantra, so the recitation of sacred sound syllables that it's understood in these traditions that the vibration of the sound themselves are the body of the mother or the deity. If it's not a, a, a goddess, you know, or the, or the God. Yeah. So just by reciting the mantra, as you said, one of her names is she who tears apart thoughts, it goes in and it starts working with the mind stuff. And certain, you know, again, certain attachments, certain beliefs, certain narrative, 
that's very yeah. limiting. We don't even realize it's limiting. Maybe it's coming from programming, religious programming, social programming. Um, but you can also find so many different variations too. And it's important to read different translations of this text, just like it is of the Gita or, you know, so many of these sacred scriptures. But you can see it as a, you know, it's that you can approach it as a guide in really coming back to um, what we really are, consciousness itself, and just looking at the ways that we um, don't really know ourselves or um, are, are oh, identifying with certain experiences we're having. And not that these experiences aren't real because we really are having an, an emotional response to them, but we're able to step back and hold the greater picture or really even understand, you know, maybe if we don't understand in the moment what the meaning is, see, oh, something else is happening. It's things are not as they appear. This illness is super challenging. It's bringing up all these fears, you know, it's bringing up loss and all that, but what is the greater picture? What am I, what is the experience? And what do I need to remember? And I love that word in English, remember, because it's, if I'm remembering correctly, etymologically, it means to piece back together. So we're so fragmented. Mm. You know? And so it's defragmenting um, so many different levels of our being and bringing us back yes. to the source. Yes. And if anything, that refuge in the heart. Yes. And what's interesting about chapter 11 specifically is they continually in the verses refer to, in this instance, Bhuvaneshwari. Uh, at, at the end of almost every verse, they say, exposer of consciousness, we yeah. bow to you. We bow to you. Yeah. And, and when I first read that, I was like, it really resonated throughout my whole body. And I thought, wow, <laughs> exposer of consciousness. That's such a powerful translation. Because as you know, often with Sanskrit, we just don't have the English words right. to communicate what that one frequency represents. So it's quite interesting um, because, you know, it's not, it's not, it's like Narayani Namostute, right? But it's like, there's bowing in there, there's to the Maha, the great mother, but it's, mm -hmm. it's been beautifully translated as exposure of consciousness. Exactly. Yeah, it's really amazing. So can you just explain yeah. what does that mean? Yeah, sure. You know, that, that, that exposure of consciousness, I was going to say it's beautiful because we say, so she's Mahamaya. So a lot of times in these different um, Eastern philosophical traditions, Maya is explained as a, almost a form of deception you know, an illusion, things on it to say too, it's like, yeah, the world is an illusion. It's like, well, yeah, but it's, I'm having this experience. How is this an illusion? And we take a different orientation in my, um, in the Shakta lineages and particularly in my Sri Vidya lineage. Um, my teacher has always pointed out, you know, it's not that the world is an illusion, it's illusory. It's not as it seems. So what does that mean? So we have to find out through our experience, you know, and the teachings can say this, but really these teachings are about embodiment and having that experience because she's the one who's exposing consciousness. Mm. You have to feel that in ourselves. Yeah. And the goddess has her Shakti, you know, her power. So she's the power that animates. We say she's the one in the many, she's everything. She brings illness, is illness and removes it. And that's hard for us, especially coming out of more Western or dualistic um, culture, you know, philosophies and cultures, it's hard for us to understand. But so she's everything and her powers are to create, to sustain, to destroy, 
than to conceal and reveal. Because Maya, actually, if you break it down, it comes from a root of, from mater, like ma mother, mm -hmm. right? From matrika, but to measure out. So she's measuring out consciousness. If we come from her, she's the one that's either putting on veils and saying, you're going to remember, or, and you're going to, you know, I'm going to um, reveal this at this time, or I'm going to conceal it. There's an intelligence behind what we don't know. But ultimately, what the Chandipat is going after, and I should say this, too, is this, this the, our fundamental problem, our funded, the root problem is our ignorance, mm -hmm. that we see things a certain way, right, but not really as they are, you know, because again, Mahamaya is showing things are illusory, they are not as they appear, but it's also her play, which it doesn't always feel like a play to us, her Leela, mm -hmm. yes. to conceal and say, okay, you're going to experience it as this pandemic in 2020 and you're going to experience it all as all this injustice and we're all you know everyone suffer so many are suffering and not sure what to do but what is the greater picture she's not a punitive deity at all yeah. it's in the name of our liberation and waking up to remember what we are what the world really is and I want, thank you. I'm so glad you said all of that because when we were speaking ahead of this interview, we were talking about, okay, let's, let's discuss the Chantipath, but not the entire text. We really highlighted one chapter, chapter 11, for the very reasons you just mentioned. And so can you expand on that more? Because um, I want listeners to understand there's really only one chapter you can read right now during this mm -hmm. period. I mean, by all means, find the, the text, um, reach out to Laura, you know, for more information. But explaining why this is such an invaluable text for us now at this time for people who are interested in these types of studies how can we really embody what mm -hmm. this particular text shares so i think you know tantra is a system it's impossible to define but <laughs> i know we've talked about <laughs> yeah, about it in some of the other yeah things too i know so i think i <laughs> these different definitions and, and so many different ways to to speak to it we can do another episode or 10 more on that later. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> have a whole school on that. Oh my God. Because there are, yeah. But this, um, but really, you know, one of the ways that I understand it's a path of paradox, it's a path of understanding things are always both and. And that can be frustrating to us of coming again out of these dualistic systems and expecting it to be either this or that, or black or white. And so it's really giving us, you know, the Chandipad is presenting you know, this expression, all these, this diversity of expression of form and showing how power can be misused, how power can be lost, how power can be stolen, um, and also specifically how power can be maintained and sustained in that sense of we're not, uh, you know, it's not oppressive, it's not taking from others, it's something that's inherent in all of us. And so we go on this journey through the recitation of the text or doing and the practices of understanding our own relationship to power within ourselves, within the world, within people around us. And it also provides a framework to understand what we may consider horrible. And it's not to say it's not horrible what's happening, you know, on yeah. so many different levels here in 2020. Yes. But again, to, to, you know, coming etymologically from the root of Tantra, um, the meaning Tan can mean to stretch and expand, and Tra can have reference to protect, 
Mm -hmm. So to stretch our consciousness, she's expanding that exposure of consciousness. She's expanding, stretching our consciousness to hold this possibility that yes, this illness is incredibly frightening. It's creating a lot of pain. There's a lot of loss, you know, but really what is death? What is our understanding around death? Because so many of these practice, all the practices, these tantric lineages are preparing us for that ultimate physical of leaving our consciousness, leaving this form, but saying we're so much more than these forms. Yeah. We're not just these bodies. We have a body, we have thoughts, but we are not these thoughts. We are not these bodies. And, um, you know, again, there's, there's, there's so much more to experience. So, and in that, and this particular chapter, chapter 11 and chapter 12 is another good one because it's, they're praising her and saying, thank you. You're the one that comes and you bring epidemics or you bring disease or there's war, you know, that's happening or there's this, you know, that's this injustice that's happening, but that's you too. And really what we learn, and this can be a stretch for all of us, really, especially when we're new and coming into these, this text and these teachings, the divine mother is the demons as well as, as the divinity. So all of the afflictions that we experience are part of her play. It's part of this greater field of us, you know, again, an opportunity to come back into understanding what we are. And that's so esoteric, I understand. Um, it's difficult. How do we describe that which is indescribable? We really have to have an experience. Well, I think it might help to explain that the, um, in the greater text of the Chandipak, there's a battle that's taking place. Yeah, we haven't talked about that. I know. So there's the yeah. battle that goes across the chapters and this can be related to an inner battle, the battle that's taking place in, in 2020. There's so many analogies that can be made to this, right? Yeah. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that without getting too esoteric. <laughs> <laughs> I'll try. I mean, I love it. Like we can talk about this all day long. <laughs> I know, I know. There's just layers upon layers and layers. And the beauty about these tantric systems is they'll meet us where we're at. Mm -hmm. And it's like we say the little bijas, you know, the sound syllables and the mantra, the portals of consciousness. So I just hope if there's just one thing that you hear, or even that name, Durga, 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 what will open, what will unfold? Because there is this beautiful um, magnetizing energy I find even in putting our attention to these traditions. So just to speak, I'll, I'll attempt to say this um, maybe uh, more simply, but the story is that there is, you know, things are out of balance and way out of balance in all the worlds. Um, all the different techniques of the different gods and, you know, humans and so forth. It's just, it's, just, it's not doing anything. It's just creating more bloodshed or more suffering, or they really are at, you know, at a loss. What do we do? And so they know that it's only through the grace of the divine mother because she created it all. We take that orientation that she's the one that can stop it. So she's called upon to come and to meet these forces, these destructive forces. And so the Chandipat is told over many chapters, but there's three main parts. And each of the parts are referencing different battles, different expressions of um, her functions of consciousness. And so even in the first part, actually what we get is this whole story laying out, um, you know, how does the one become the many? What is the nature of reality? 
why do we have certain experiences that we have and without getting too detailed, but it's really the sage telling these two, a king and a merchant who've been kicked out of their kingdom, out of their business. And yet they're still, even though they've been kicked out and there's been all these betrayals and, and so much struggle and so forth, they still feel this longing for those that deceived them. Or there's, they're, they're missing the abuser, so to speak. Or it's like wanting to understand on this other level. And so the sage says, okay, let me tell you a story and why this is our human condition and what this, how this story can benefit us. And so he proceeds to then describe the battles that occur. And really, as you said, um, the battles are really our inner battles, the battles with our mind, the battle with our thoughts, our beliefs, and that, um, you know, our, our preferences, our dislikes, so many different expressions of our human experience. And we see Durga appearing in these many different forms to face, to confront what's there. And this, I think, is important um, and maybe um, hopefully helpful. I find it really relative for what we're experiencing now in 2020. What we see with goddess Durga, when she comes out on any battlefield, She's completely composed. She's not complacent. She's not checked out. She is very present. She's very aware. She's very focused. She sees the demons. She sees, you know, the, this expression of the corruption or the greed, or maybe it's, you know, even, um, I mean, oh, there's so many different ways, you know, the, the anger, the rage that's run amok that's yeah. being expressed. But she lends her presence and her attention there and witnesses it. And so I'm not going to look away. I see this is here. And it's such a deeper teaching here. It's like we may not know what to do in any given moment. So we wait. And because this text reminds us ultimately we're not the doer, that it's her Shakti. It's her power that's moving through us. It's her grace. And no battle, you know, is too difficult for her. And so in any moment, it may feel like, oh my God, I can't get through these times or this, you know, loss after loss or this, you know, this, but there's, there's different techniques we can use to stay centered and composed. Yeah. And that's, she's really another way that she's been described as, as the eye in the center of the storm. So how do we stay composed, centered when everything else is whirling around us, you know, flipping up and down and blowing up, you know, being destroyed. And it's so confusing and it does generate so much fear. Yeah. So what do we hold on to? And so often what we want to hold on to is that which isn't permanent. The only thing that is, is really consciousness itself. That's the only thing that's unchanging. The ground is always changing. And we've learned that certainly in 2020 that we don't have control. Yeah. And so what do we have control of on some level? We have control of our mind, our breath. How we choose to respond, start to notice when we get reactive, when we're triggered. Nothing is wrong with any of the emotions, our grief, our fear, our feeling of helplessness, but there's a way through. We're not powerless. We're not helpless. We may not be able to quote unquote change things for an outcome that our mind wants, but again, to take this greater picture. So the battles that are presented in the story I mean, if you read the English interpretation, sometimes it's very bloody. It seems very, sometimes it's like, what the heck? This is really violent. Isn't this perpetuating patriarchal concepts of warfare? No, because it's a different, it's coming out of a different system, a different orientation. And it's extreme to make a point. Our thoughts are extreme. 
our emotions can be really extreme. But then again, to come back to what is the source? Always the divine. We call it the mother, the father, formless, Brahman in the Vedas, you know, Parmashiva in the Shaivite traditions, Vishnu in other traditions, Kalima in certain you know, Shakta lineages. So again, so many different expressions because look at us in these forms. There's so human form, there's so many different expressions of our diversity. So it's almost like the English interpretation has been presented in a way that the human mind can understand because we have created so many actual physical wars in our history as humans on the planet and devastating periods of time that it's almost we need to have that presented to us literally in our faces so that we can have something triggered internally through continuing to read the text so you can actually push through, push through, push through, have those barriers broken down so that consciousness, that higher state of awareness can come through. And then that's when you can have these profound experiences through the text. Yes. So, and that's where these practices coming in the text that are there too. What can you do? As you described, breath, the calming of the body, all these things. But it's so much more than that. There's, I mean, yeah. there's yantra work and, and mantra work, and that's presented in the text as well. In visualizations, and yeah. then, yeah, and then working with different teachers, or there's different lineage differences, mm -hmm. but then you have different prescriptions of how to deal in terms of a epidemic. What yeah. you know, what chapters do you recite, or what mantra do you recite? What visualization do you do? And it's not mm -hmm. that we're imagining or making something up. It's like we're really tuning into a frequency yes. of consciousness that can liberate us from our ignorance, from our fear, from our you know, maybe even, you know, we'll do the different levels. I can just say the different levels of suffering. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because there, if people are not, haven't yet um, gone down the path of working with uh, these practices, they can seem really like out, really out there and like, what are you talking about? So can you expand on, just give some examples of the types of practices that are really tangible and really accessible in the real world of today? Like these are just as relevant today as they were thousands of years ago when this text was written. I mean, just even reciting the name of the mother, a name that if you, if you hear a name and you feel that it, you feel some rev resonance in your heart or in your being, or maybe you have, you know, tingling sensation or you tear up, there's something there, you know, to, to follow. And let's just take the example of Durga, you know, and so visualizing her getting a picture of her on her lion or her tiger you know and there she is with her eight to 18 arms and the different tools and just looking at that picture and maybe even silently reciting her name Durga 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 and noticing what happens because Sanskrit you know there's a whole tradition of linguistic mysticism yes. and that can be daunting too the Sanskrit mm -hmm. we say in in my lineage you know yes of course course we want to honor um, the correct meter and pronunciation intonation and so forth because it's going to um, emit a certain frequency and connect us but it we don't need that if your devotion is there you're longing for that connection with the mother or with consciousness in a particular yeah. form is there you'll feel it and the visualization <clears throat> excuse me visualization does something because it's registering internally you know that this is real. It's the, the mind isn't saying, "Oh, that's really not real," or "This isn't real." On a on a deeper level, 
It's yeah. having an, uh, an effect, an energetic effect. And then just chanting or doing kirtan, totally. singing, devotional mm-hmm. songs, playing yes. a CD, or you hear, you know, beautiful devotional music. And what happens when you join in either just listening or singing, chanting along, what shifts in your body, what shifts in your mind? And what kind of state of consciousness does it evoke? And just trying that when you're really um, feeling frightened. It doesn't, and these, it's not to say this is going to take away your fear entirely. No, we're in, we're in these forms. We're in this reality. And there, is, there are things that are frightening, you know, to our mind and so forth. And we may not always remember, but yet this is providing a map and, and then different tools, techniques. So mantra, kirtan, visualization. Um, if it helps, if it's not too stressful, you know, to be reading these texts and contemplating, okay, what are they saying here? Or listening to different teachers speaking about the significance and how it relates to us in our own personal journey. And then collectively, how does it relate to us as a collective? And as you said, the, what's beautiful about Tantra is that it does meet you where you're at. So you can be a beginner, never not be familiar with the work with bhakti or mantra or the practice of kirtan or any of this. And yet just simply Googling that stuff and looking up and finding an image, you may have an experience because the transmission knows it's like where you're at and then you'll, you'll go deeper and deeper, you know? And then of course, if you've been doing this for many, many years and decades, even it's a whole other level. It's like, Whoa. (laughs) And even still, she never ceases to surprise me. I've had, you know, Many students, you know, and I say many because quite a significant number of students that had no background whatsoever in Eastern philosophical traditions had the dream, looked it up. Who is this, you know, this Indian woman, this, you know, brown skinned woman with the dark hair, not maybe not even realizing she's from India, but she has this or that, or she's this golden sari. Find the name, or maybe they just, some have even just have shared, they've heard the name. And then something happened then it found me on the internet. And then suddenly it just everything like that bija, that drop that just opens and expands. So you never, never know. And um, there's so many possibilities. So many, so many. I'm going to definitely have you back on as a guest. Oh, I'd be honored. Thank you. That'd be awesome. So exciting. Just wonderful. So much Shakti, so much energy speaking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. I love it. I love talking with you and you have such a vast realm of knowledge. I mean, it's amazing. So many different Mm. aspects. Um, So I know there's so much more you can share. And if you are interested in learning more about Laura, buying her book, you can visit her website, lauraamazoni.com, and that is spelled L-A-U-R-A-A-M-A-Z-Z-O-N-E.com. lauraamazoni.com, and her book is Goddess Durga and Sacred Female Power, which is a fantastic book. And uh, thank you. Just amazing, amazing references. Wonderful to be here. Thank you, Tatiana. Beautiful. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Jema. Jema. Victory. Reverence to the mother goddess in all her forms. Thank you. Thank you.